It's 8.30 on Friday, October 19th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, analysis of a new report on how many Mississippians are struggling to manage rising health care cuts. All of these health issues cut across all demographics. We've noted it's urban, it's rural. All ages are impacted by our health issues in the state, and it's time we came together and addressed this in a common sense, practical matter, uh, rather than falling into partisan divide or ideological divide. We'll hear about public university and community college programs looking to advance more Mississippians. And a new anti-smoking campaign is aimed directly at younger Mississippians who vape. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Researchers with Families USA, a nonpartisan organization, say working women with a high school diploma are three and a half times more likely than college-educated men to experience poor health. That's one of the findings of the nonprofit group's newest report. Mississippians are weighing in on the results. Jameson Taylor is director of policy at the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. He tells MPB's Desiree Fraser single female-headed households have increased dramatically, which he he says, has negatively affected women's financial stability. I think the problems that working class women face are significant. Uh, And one of the most important drivers of the challenges that working class women face is the single parent household. We know that it's, it's hard to raise kids. It's really hard to raise kids as a single parent. What we've seen uh, since the 1970s, for instance, has been a massive increase in this rate of single parenthood and the rate of children being born outside of wedlock, which has gone from 10% in 1970 to 40% today. 40% of all births in the U.S. now occur outside of wedlock. And this is something that creates a lot of challenges for women in particular because women, the burden of raising children often does fall upon women, and they do need somewhere to turn for help. What would help with this issue? They're saying in this report that policy leaders need to begin to look at the issues that are impacting women, and that has not occurred. I have two thoughts about that. The first is women have two places to turn for help. The first is the government, with the end result being a cradle-to-grave welfare system. The other alternative is a stable marriage, in particular with a partner who is holding down a job. But more and more men in particular are not working. More and more men are not going to college. Today, the majority of college and doctoral degrees are being awarded to women, not to men. And we've seen since the 70s, many more women are also working outside the home, and many more women are taking on managerial positions. This creates a lot of stress for women, and it raises challenges for kids. So one thing we need to look at is what is best for the kids. The second point I think it's important to make is that the U.S. economy is rigged. It's been in the process of being rigged since the 1970s. It's been captured by corporate interests. And I think that uh, this report is kind of getting at that. The question is, what do we do about that? I believe that these interests have also captured the U.S. government. And so looking to more government health care is not the solution. Looking to more government is not the solution because government is part of the problem. I believe that government today, through regulation and licensing restrictions and zoning and all kinds of rules, is hindering the creation of small businesses 
and it's making it hard for uh, people just to get well-paying jobs. And I don't mean a job at McDonald's. I mean a well-paying job. In this report also, it does illustrate that race and ethnicity um, do create uh, problems for folks in terms of access to health care and its affordability, along with working women of all races. And it suggests that politicizing the issue of health care has caused a divide. And if people could come together and see the common challenges that they face, then they could deal with some of these issues instead of constantly pointing fingers. I agree that health care is highly politicized. Health care is also very profitable, in particular for insurance companies and hospitals. And these insurance companies are making a lot of money from Obamacare. Hospitals are making a lot of money from the expansion of Medicaid. I look at health care as an economist. When I look at health care, I see that what we need to do is focus on increasing the supply of U.S. health care. We have rising costs in health care that is making health care unaffordable for everyone. We have to deal with the rising costs of health care. The best way to do that is to use technology and to use deregulation to expand the supply of health care. Health care access has to be about getting actual health care. It has to be tapping into an actual supply of health care, not just giving someone an insurance card or a Medicaid card. Well, we've had a number of hospitals close in Mississippi, and some are at threat of closure right now. How should policymakers address this, and how can they do it while not waiting on the government, so to speak, the federal government, to deal with it? Some of the policies that Mississippi can pursue to expand health care, in particular rural health care, would be to allow nurse practitioners to practice up to their full practice authority. We have, we have an untapped supply of health care in Mississippi with our nurses who are not allowed to do what they are fully trained to do. Uh, the medical association and the, uh, the medical licensure board is preventing these nurses from offering the services that they could that they could offer in rural areas. We need to let these people practice up to their full authority. Another thing that we need to open the door to is telemed. Telemed allows a patient to see a doctor in the comfort of their living room. It opens up a world of medical care to that patient at a very low cost, and we need to maximize opportunities for telemed and get customers plugged into that. Well, Jamison Taylor with the Mississippi Center for Public Policy, we appreciate your time in speaking about this important issue. Thank you, Desiree. Roy Mitchell is director of the Mississippi Health Advocacy Program. He tells our Desiree Frazier they're seeing the same trend, but he says it's at a point where regardless of race, education, or income, Mississippians struggle to keep up with health care costs. That makes it necessary to bridge divides and address the issues. The report notes that for more than a decade, the problems facing working-class women and the health disparities between such women and college-educated edu- men grew at a, a rapid rate. Uh, in fact, uh, the proportion of working-class women who spent at least 14 days out of the month in poor health rose by 32% in the past 10 years. What does that say for Mississippi? Well, um, given the well-documented relationship between health status and social and economic circumstances, um, The serious health problems experienced by working-class women in Mississippi 
likely reflect women's underlying life challenges, and and that's a public policy that's been neglected for far too long in Mississippi. Um, some real examples of this are um, the fact that we've neglected to expand Medicaid in this state, um, the fact that we have balanced billing in this state, that uh, uh, the fact that we have um, the highest rate of medical bankruptcy in this state. Um, there's just numerous uh, health policy issues that, that are underlying all, um, this problem of uh, working women not getting adequate health care. As a matter of fact, in the past three months, four Mississippi hospitals have declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, and five rural hospitals in the state have closed since 2013. And that illustrates that, you know, if, if it's bad for working-class women in urban areas, it's particularly bad for working-class women in rural areas. And then the report brings up something that I think we already knew, uh, that there were issues of race and ethnicity um, impacting people of color when it comes to health care affordability and access. Yes, well... As you know, Desiree, we are a direct consumer assistance program, meaning we help people who have problems with things like balanced billing or Medicaid eligibility. And our experiences with health consumer assistance and health care policy provide us with vivid examples of the deeply personal health and economic struggles that are broadly shared amongst all Mississippians, regardless of income, education, class, race. Thousands of Mississippians contend with a health care system that's ill-suited to meet many of their fundamental needs. This report is suggesting that people need to come together around the challenges that face everyone, and, and there is a politicizing of health care that is preventing that from happening. Your perspective? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the report seeks to cut through the politics of division by focusing on the human dimensions of of the healthcare story. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of that policy division here in Mississippi. Again, the fact that we haven't expanded Medicaid um, based purely on, on um, ideological grounds, um, there's no fiscal reason for not doing it. And as this report illustrates, a lot of people are suffering because we haven't expanded Medicaid, um, in particular working class women. On top of that, we have communities um, suffering because we haven't expanded Medicaid, as evidenced by uh, the rural hospital foreclosures that we're seeing in record numbers. So if you were going to uh, change policy in Mississippi, would it necessarily be expanding Medicaid, or are there some other things that could be done that would help people with access to care? Absolutely. Rejecting expansion of Medicaid is a fiscal loss to the state as a whole. Um, it's a fiscal loss to counties, um, cities, um, and it's also resulting in you know, physical suffering. Absolutely, Medicaid expansion, right off the bat, Mississippi has got to address um, this. The hospitals know it. Families know it. Again, we lead the nation in medical debt in this country, and if we just put aside the ideological arguments and look at it from a practical, common-sense place and, and try to address our health needs without making an ideological or political stance, we will come to the conclusion that this is what we need to do as soon as practical.
Roy Mitchell with the Mississippi Health Advocacy Program. Thank you for speaking to us about this important issue. Thank you. Coming up, we'll hear about public university and community college programs looking to advance more Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation's Get to College program. Based in South Haven, Jackson, and Ocean Springs, Get to College advisors help students and families plan and pay for college. Learn more at woodwardhines.org. Hi, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson, inviting you to join us right here on MPB for Friday Night Under the Lights. We'll get you all the scores and keep you up to date on all the players at 10 p.m. every Friday night this fall. Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Friday Night Under the Lights. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Working adults who attended college but did not graduate now have the opportunity to return and earn their degrees through a program called Complete to Compete. Mississippi universities and community colleges are celebrating the program. Alfred Rankins, Jr. is the Commissioner of Higher Education. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier how the program helps advance Mississippians. It's a great program and it creates opportunities uh, for deserving working professionals to earn that educational credential. Heard a lot of clapping. What happened here today? This is the one-year celebration of uh, kicking off this program. Uh, We've had a lot of success. Uh, Hundreds of students have been able to earn their degree through this program. And we took this opportunity today to celebrate uh, the success and to thank our partners. Do you know how many have graduated through this program? 486. Uh, And we still have more in the pipeline that are looking to finish. So uh, very excited about this day and opportunity we're creating for deserving Mississippians. And this is all universities and colleges, public throughout the state? This is our public universities and our public community colleges across the state that are participating in this effort. Anything that I didn't ask you that's important about people who are working and trying to still achieve the American dream? Uh, I would just encourage those that have not taken a look at our website and looked at their opportunities to do so because it's a great opportunity for them to uh, earn that degree. Commissioner of Higher Education, Alfred Rankins. Shane Hooper is president of the Board of Trustees at the Institutions of Higher Learning. He tells our Desiree Frazier the program has broadened opportunities for some. This was an exceptional day, as was um, evidenced by the people that came forward and spoke today. Uh, everybody from the governor to actually one of the uh, graduates from the Complete to Compete program. It's a wonderful program. It, it, it's a great use of state resources. Uh, the governor has been very supportive. Uh, we've been able to get people from a place where they were kind of limited by their educational level and take them to a whole new level, which opens up all kinds of doors uh, for them. So it was a great day, and we're looking forward to continuing um, that, that, that program. It's been great for the state of Mississippi. Educational achievement is important for all of us, uh, even if it's not us getting the, 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 the uh, diploma. It is, it is important for everyone in the state to, to, to achieve more together. This is one of those, definitely one of those things where a rising tide raises all boats. Um, so it's a great program. What stands out to you about it, if you had to convince someone to say, this is for you? 
the simplicity of it, being able to go to the website, the Mississippi C2C website, and then find out exactly where you are, and then there's resources there to help you figure out what you need to do to complete your degree, it really removes all the obstacles. Uh, this program, like I said, it really helps Mississippians. It helps the entire community of Mississippians. It's so it, it's relatively simple to go to the website, uh, make an application, find out exactly what you have to do. There's all kinds of resources out there to help you get it achieved. So we're very happy and very proud of that program. IHL Board President Shane Hooper with MPB's Desiree Frazier. State community colleges are also celebrating the My Best program this week. Through the program, high school dropouts can earn a high school equivalency diploma while gaining skills training that can lead directly to a job. Dr. Andrea Mayfield is head of the community college board. She tells us the program features collaboration between schools and large employers. There are over 150 different programs or occupations as part of the My Best program. And each community college, all 15 participate, by the way, but each community college has select programs that are a big part of My Best. And it depends on where the jobs are and and what the market is showing. So the location of the community college would be? That's right. That's right. That determines what programs are participating. Are students steered toward those specific jobs knowing that they're needed? Yes, they are. We give students the opportunity, of course, to make a decision as to to what they want, but we make them aware of where the opportunities are and what programs will provide the training that they need to be able to take advantage of those careers. Do each of the programs vary in length? They can, but uh, typically the the program is anywhere from a year to two years in length, depending on how far the student wants to go. Are they looking to um, obtain a certificate only? Do they want to reach the Associate of Applied Science degree? What are their What are their goals? What are they looking to do? Of but course, the, the end result is work. How many individuals have benefited from the My Best program? Well, to date, we have over 1,400 students that have benefited. It's it's an amazing program. And when you listen to student testimonials about where they were before they found My Best and where they are now, I mean, it's mind, it's mind-blowing. We know the program works. We have the data. We received that just this week. And students who complete the My Best program are making in excess of an additional $8,000 a year. It's amazing. Dr. Andrea Mayfield is the executive director of the Mississippi Community College Board. Dr. Mayfield, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For more information on the program, visit mccb.edu and click the My Best link. You're listening to Mississippi Edition, the only daily radio news magazine that covers the whole state. Coming up, a new anti-smoking campaign aimed directly at younger Mississippians who vape. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. Can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 38 stores in Mississippi received a warning or a fine for selling e-cigarette products to minors between June and September 2018. That's according to the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA believes that youth use of use of e-cigarettes is reaching epidemic proportions. 2.1 million middle and high school students reported current e-cigarette use in 2017, and about 80% of youth do not see great risk or harm from regular use of e-cigarettes. Mitch Zeller is director of the FDA's Center for Tobacco Products. He tells us the FDA is talking directly to at-risk teens about the dangers of youth e-cigarette use to combat the epidemic. As a federal matter, 18 is the minimum age of sale. There are some states, some local governments that, that might have a higher age. How many citations have been issued to businesses that are selling to minors in Mississippi? Um, we did an enforcement blitz, the largest coordinated enforcement action in the history of the Food and Drug Administration this summer nationally uh, that resulted in um, over 1,300 illegal sales to minors. In Mississippi, the number was around 40. And is that a, a larger number, a lower number than citations issued for tobacco products? Um, it's very hard to make the comparison, even though that's a, that, that's a really good question to ask. So um, I, I can't answer it relatively. What I can say is retailers have a responsibility to follow the law and to not sell any tobacco product to a kid. And the fact that in this blitz between June and August, we had over 1,300 illegal sales of just e-cigarettes nationally shows that retailers need to do more to follow the law. Manufacturers have a responsibility to make sure their marketing isn't appealing to kids. And we, FDA, have a responsibility to enforce the law and to do public education campaigns to make sure kids understand that this is not a cost-free proposition, that there are risks associated with using any product with nicotine in them. There is an explosion of e-cigarettes and those devices and those type of devices over the last couple of years. I mean, it's happened very quickly. And there are hundreds of flavors that would appeal to teenagers and those younger uh, has the FDA been able to keep up with this constantly changing market? We're doing the best that we can. We've taken significant enforcement actions. We issued warning letters earlier this year to 17 e-liquid manufacturers that were selling their products in ways that resembled juice boxes, candy, cookies, breakfast cereal, cartoon imagery. 17 warning letters to 17 manufacturers, and all of them cleaned up their act and changed their advertising, their labeling, their marketing. But we have an epidemic. This is by far the most popular category of tobacco products with kids, and there's more that we need to do. And one of the, the most important actions that we've taken is a nationwide public education campaign under our real cost-branded effort to break through to kids to get them to understand that these products can contain nicotine, that nicotine can rewire their brains, that these products can contain things like formaldehyde and metal particles, and kids who experiment with an e-cigarette are more likely to try a cigarette. So there's a lot that we have to do with enforcement, with public education, but other sectors, retailers, manufacturers, they have obligations too to keep these products out of the hands of kids. You're targeting kids in revealing those kinds of hazards or threats. What about parents? Are parents aware of the possible dangers of smoking this type of device? I think a lot of parents have heard about e-cigarettes, but 
One of the challenges with some of these products is they resemble USB sticks or flash drives. They can be used very discreetly. We've heard anecdotally kids can use these products literally in class. Um, and so if parents want more information, the Surgeon General has a wonderful website. It's called e-cigarettes.surgeongeneral.gov. Great place for parents to go for information. And for kids who are concerned, they can go to our branded website, therealcost.gov. Let me ask you one final question. Most businesses or public places ban tobacco products, cigarettes. Is that the case for e-cigarettes? No, it's not. Um, and at a, at a state or local level, there are these, these smoke-free laws, and in, in only a minority of places have those laws been changed uh, to include the use of, of e-cigarettes. Uh, there, are, there is no national smoke-free law. There is no national uh, restriction on where e-cigarettes can use. It's up to states and localities. Mitch Zeller is the director of the FDA Center for Tobacco Products. Mitch, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Karen. That's our show. Join us Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. 